Today on the Bill Kelly Show podcast, the OMA and RNAO calling for mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations among Ontario's healthcare workers. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce supports COVID-19 proof of immunization, and it's asking the federal and Ontario governments to review Manitoba's model. The explosion of cannabis shops across Ontario may soon hit a tipping point and cause a wave of closures. And billionaire Jeff Bezos' rocket is sent to jet off into space Tuesday from a West Texas flight facility. If you had the money, would you go into space? The Bill Kelly Show podcast is now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario Chamber of Commerce announcing it supports a centralized, Canada-wide approach to COVID-19 proof of immunization that could easily be used to confirm vaccination status for international and domestic use. Now, the Chamber has written a letter. It's sent it to the federal government and the Ontario government. And basically in this letter, it says you guys and and girls have to review Manitoba's model in adopting proof of immunization in this province. And without it, without an interprovincial harmonization, Canada risks a piecemeal approach. It'll make it difficult and unpredictable for individuals and employers during an already uncertain time. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Rossi, how are you today? Hi, Rick. Thanks for shining a light on it, and it's Rocco. Mr. Rossi's my dad. (laughs) All right. Um, The Premier has already said uh, he's shooting down any thought about a vaccine passport. Your reaction to his comment that, quote, we are not going to have a split society. Um, Are are you buying what he's selling? Uh, Sadly, we already have a split society because uh, we have those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated. And businesses, by employment standards, are required uh, to provide a safe working environment and a safe place for their customers, students, clients, etc. And what you're seeing is already, because government is not stepping forward, at least not in Ontario, Individual businesses are stepping forward and basically saying to their employees, some of whom are not coming back to work because of fears that, no, 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 everyone in the office, everyone in our store, uh, everyone in our restaurant, in our gym will be vaccinated. So we're, we're taking every step and the Chamber of Commerce is also distributing free Um, rapid tests to small businesses to give that extra layer of support. And if you if you don't have uh, a uniform system, then you end up with these piecemeal steps. Seneca College just announced recently that uh, students and faculty coming back in person uh, will be required to be vaccinated. And and again, you're, you're seeing this because people are struggling with the notion of how to make things safe, how to rebuild confidence, how to ensure we never go back to a full societal lockdown. And without taking a step like this, you run that, that risk that no one wants to see. Is there also a fear that potential outbreaks at workplaces, whether it's your corner store, variety store, or you know your, your local supermarket, that those outbreaks create a perception that this place is unsafe and having uh, this sort of immunization uh, system would wipe that out? 
Well, a hundred percent. It is about rebuilding confidence, not just as a perception, but as a reality, because we've seen that COVID, particularly with the new variants, is becoming largely the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And so people have a choice, right, have a choice to get vaccinated or not. But then their rights end when they put at risk others around them, our children, etc. Um, and so having that uh, level of uh, security and, and safety, if people choose not to get vaccinated, they're not going to be able to go in person to Seneca College, as a, for instance. They could continue their courses online. Um, so there are options, but there are consequences to choices, and this is the key. And making it as simple as possible, which is really the duty of the government and not individual businesses and organizations, is is what we'd like to see. We'd actually like to see it on a nationwide um, basis because quite clearly governments are going to have to provide this for international travel. You're already seeing the EU and others demanding it. So if you're going to do it for that anyway, why not just have one system that people can use very simply and that protects um that protects uh, privacy information. I mean, the premier has said, look, you already have a receipt. You have those paper receipts that you got uh, when you got immunized. You can use that. That has my birthday on it. It has, I, I'd, I'd rather have a, a system similar to what uh, Manitoba or what Quebec are talking about uh, that, that simplifies matter and protects my information and just shows that I've been double vaxxed. In uh, the Chamber's letter to uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Premier Doug Ford, Patty Haidu, the Federal Health Minister, Christine Elliott, Ontario's Health Minister, uh, you point to uh, Manitoba's system or, or model. What are they doing? Well, they've, they've created basically a card uh, that uh, can be used. And, um, you know, you're also, you're also seeing various systems with QR codes that, that simplify matters so that uh, it's not easily read by someone looking at it, et cetera. Um, again, I, I, I'm, you know, we're not specifically wedded to any one system, but we are wedded to the notion that one system would make more sense than simply having a, a free-for-all where different people interpret their responsibility to provide a safe workplace a safe studies place, a, state, a safe business environment for employees, clients, uh, customers, etc. And, and that's effectively what the government is now forcing people to do. And, and let's be clear, you know, look at the, look at the UK, which uh, was way, in it, way ahead of us on vaccinations, uh, is now today is technically Freedom Day, uh, in uh, in the UK, and yet the Prime Minister is having to self-isolate because uh, he um, uh, came into contact with uh, someone who's now tested positive for, for COVID. So that doesn't strike me as a whole lot of freedom. And the key is to be able um, to identify uh, vaccinated, unvaccinated, and to um, 
ensure that we get those vaccination numbers up as quickly as possible and as high as possible, because otherwise the, the, the premier himself has said he's not prepared to guarantee that lockdown is off the table. And yet he's saying, you know, well, there's constitutional rights. Well, for the last 16 months, he hasn't cared about constitutional rights as we've locked down businesses, as people have gone bankrupt, as they've lost their homes, uh, because society retains the right to uh, to trump individual individual rights aren't necessarily absolute if they then put public health at risk. And this is the responsibility of government first and foremost. We only have about a minute left, but I have to ask this question because there is a segment of the population who will never get vaccinated for whatever reason. How would this system impact them? Well, uh, again, choices have uh, consequences. If there's an actual medical reason, if not, accommodations have to be uh, developed. So whether there's uh, online training options, delivery options for things, work from home, or in the case of unvaccinated, do you set up an accommodation where you do rapid testing on a regular uh, basis. I don't want to get vaccinated, but I'm prepared to be uh, tested to prove uh, that uh, I'm not positive uh, and or uh, I have to continue to use masking, whereas others have that option. Again, you, you have choice, but there are consequences to choice uh, when public health is at risk. Rocco, really appreciate the time today. Good luck with this battle. Thank you very much, sir. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. They are in full support of a COVID-19 proof of immunization system and is asking the federal and Ontario governments to review Manitoba's model and other models that are being used. Uh, hey, this this debate is not ending here. I'm sure there's going to be more discussion about this. It's the old, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. It might be a no shot, no service. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Green leader Annamie Paul uh, scheduled to hold a news conference today, a day after party executives called off a non-confidence vote that could have led to her ouster. Here's some of the details from Lori Paris. It's not clear why Tuesday's vote by the Greens Federal Council was nixed. The vote would have required backing from three-quarters of the 13-member governing body in order to proceed to a party-wide vote the following month at a general meeting, where an ultimate judgment on Paul's leadership could have been rendered by the grassroots. Two senior party sources say a party membership review that would suspend Paul's membership has also been shelved for the time being. There has been conflict within the party for months as Paul, who was elected leader in October of 2020, struggles to steer the Greens in a new direction. Lori Paris, The Canadian Press. Well, let's bring our next guest. Dr. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University and joins us now. Dr. Turnbull, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm doing great. What a roller coaster it has been for the Green Party. Oh, absolutely. This is, I really didn't see this one coming, to be honest. Like every, so, you know, like every few days, there's some other wrinkle or layer of the story that comes out. But I really didn't see this going this way. But here we are. Uh, I, I'm in agreement. I thought she was going to be out and they would have a, you know, a, a speedy leadership uh, convention or, or, or appoint uh, a new leader. And then away we go into you know, electioneering. But uh, that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, like, the timing of it was really messy, like, just because, you know, if they were going to have this vote tomorrow, 
and she didn't make it. And then it was put on to the, the larger party to have a vote in August. That runs right into what we suspect will be a federal election call. And so then what do, what do they do? And they're scrambling to try to find a leader to get through that. But on the other hand, like, even though the, the vote has been called off and apparently the, you know, the inquiries into her membership and things like that have been called off, I don't know that this puts out, you know, you know, like it's all over. There are no, nothing to see here kind of thing. Like, I think the party is still having to figure out how it's going to get past all of this because these are serious questions. I'm not sure if this is all going to go away. And so, I mean, are they going to be able to turn the channel and devote their time to an election campaign, make sure that she's elected? I don't know. Yeah, to me, this party is in tatters, I think. Uh, they could be wiped off the map in this upcoming election. And then what? I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, once the election is over, whether she has a seat in the House of Commons or not, I think she's gone. I mean, like, I think, to be honest, like, I've heard a few people speculate, like, how did we get here? Where did all these problems happen? And there's people in the party who would know that much better than I would. But, I mean, when you look at it, how is she, like, getting a leader in the House is so important. I don't know how the party will thrive if the leader is not in the House. And when she initially ran the Toronto Centre, that was one thing. But I mean, now that like, I just don't understand how when you're looking at a writing like that, that is such a central liberal writing, and they've got an incumbent in there. You know, first and foremost, you've got to get in there like the, there needs to be a writing where she can, you know, spend the time and work and be able to get in. But I mean, I think, frankly, like, in order for the party to be successful, they need to be focused on at least minimum, you know, having official party standing in the House of Commons, which is 12, where that's a long way from where they are now. And so like back in February, Annamie Paul was talking about things like, you know, let's focus on the NDP riding somewhere where there's some support for some of the ideas that we're talking about. Maybe we can build on that. Maybe we can split some votes. That was maybe not a bad electoral strategy, but it seems like now electoral strategy, green economy, all climate change, all of the things that they should be focused on are, have just been, you know, trumped by these questions around her leadership and you're right i i don't think that, like i mean if she's not going to get in the house i don't see how that's going to happen in toronto center what is going to happen to her leadership in the fall paul is holding a news conference later on today what are the chances at that news conference she falls on her sword and says i'm out okay so that was my first inclination as soon as i heard this I'm like, <laughs> okay they're pulling back because she's agreed that she's going to you know do this herself and that would be okay fine but I'm not sure how she does that now, and I'm not sure how she doesn't do it now, to be honest. Like, I mean, if she's going to step away, they must have somebody else to replace her, and that, I guess, would be Elizabeth May. But I don't know, because, I mean, she's been so steadfast. She, she's been so, like, she's never come out and said, I'm the leader of the party, and I have to make this right for you. She's always come out and, and said, you know, I have been, been treated poorly, very poorly by the people in this, in this party. And then she went very quiet and said, she, you know, she's not going to talk anymore. She's going to let other people do the talking for her. And so I honestly don't know what she's going to come out and say. I mean, but I think, you know, it's, it's possible that she would come out and do that. But if she does, it's weird because I think the people on the council that don't support her are also on their way out. So perhaps she's just riding this thing out. Uh, we only got about 30 seconds. What's her messaging during the campaign? I mean, it has to obviously stick to, you know, the party's core belief, but she's going to be attacked from all sides. Yes. I mean, I think one way or the other, she has to say at some point, I am the leader of the party 
And, you know, it doesn't mean she has to take responsibility for other people's poor behavior, not at all. And it doesn't mean she has to downplay it. But at a certain point, she has to say, I am a leader. I am accountable. I am the only person who is in a position to change things in this party. Although it's difficult for that because I know the, the, like, the organization of the party is different from other ones. And they've said that themselves. It's not the same hyper-powerful leader as you see in some other parties. But I think in some ways we're seeing the cost of that, that she is not able at this point to turn the ship around because there's just so many questions coming at her and she doesn't seem to be able to kind of right the ship. Well said. Dr. Turnbull, I wish we had more time. Thanks for the time today and enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, thank you too. Take care. Dr. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, reflecting on uh, what should be a sensational news conference later on today where we'll hear from Green Party leader Annamie Paul. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The number of legal cannabis stores in Ontario has absolutely exploded over the past several months. And now there's a concern that this mushroom cloud is going to lead to a wave of closures in the industry. Get a load of these stats. The Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario says there were 67 stores, 67, open across the province in early 2020. That number today now stands at 817. There's also 173 on the verge of opening. And the AGCO says there are over 1,000 retail store authorization license applications that are being reviewed. If all are approved, Ontario would have more legal pot shops than LCBO stores. Think about that for a second. This is in a matter of a couple of years. There's a three-kilometer stretch on Queen Street West in Toronto. Three-kilometer stretch has 23 cannabis stores, either open or on the verge of doing so. Really, the only restrictions in Ontario for cannabis outlets is they can't be located at least 150 meters away from schools. There's a lot of area (laughs) around that, isn't there? Obviously. Mitchell Ozak is the CEO of Quanta Consulting, Inc., and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Mitchell, good morning. How's it going? Everything's great. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Is this a case of too much too fast? Uh, No, not at all. If you believe in free enterprise and you believe in uh, wide and safe access for cannabis in Ontario, there's no issues with it. Now, like everything else in business, you're going to have your winners and your losers, and we're going to experience that. But my belief is that we will see probably another 800 stores arriving in Ontario over the next year or so. So I think there's still a lot of growth to come. Why so many all of a sudden? Is this a no-fail biz model? Uh, It absolutely is not a no-fail business model. And what we're going to see is a lot of these uh, independent and, in fact, some chain cannabis stores failing over the next year to two years for some very uh, good reasons, although it's unfortunate. But the reality is the AGCO has opened up and liberalized uh, the approval of these stores. And what you're seeing is a is a, uh, a variety of uh, applications being accepted and opening up. How close are we to the point of saturation or oversaturation? Are we almost there? Well, it's an interesting situation in, in uh, Ontario because you have saturation, as you correctly identified, in places like Queen Street West. But at the same point, you have 2 million Ontarians in communities like Markham, Bond, and Mississauga with no stores. So at the, at the point where we have saturated neighborhoods, you have weed deserts in major parts of Ontario. 
And it's because those communities have said, no, thanks, we don't want these outlets. That's correct. Have any brands or, or chains separated themselves from the pack? Um, it's hard to say. Um, there are some niche providers who tend to provide a more up, upscale consumer experience. But by and large, most of the independent stores as well as chains have been competing in terms of how many more stores can they open during this gold rush. What we will likely see in the inevitable consolidation and shakeout is more of these stores starting to focus on particular consumer segments. Just like you have um, Tim Hortons catering to a certain demographic and Starbucks to others, you'll start to see that with cannabis stores. Does that mean we're going to have cannabis stores that are more high-end than others or just offering different products? A uh, combination of both. You have some very high-end cannabis stores right now in some very, um, you know, um, hoi-polloi neighborhoods in Toronto. And then you have some other stores that are more mundane and industrial. The industry is still trying to figure out what is the right mix for their particular target segment. How long do you think it's going to get to that right mix? Are we talking a year, more than that? It took um, the state of Colorado... Um, was legal in, I believe it was 2016, 2017. It took a good four to five years Hmm. for its uh, retail industry to become very mature and start offering, you know, the the products and the services that its particular consumers wanted. It does, it is going to be a rocky road. And with the advent of things like COVID, that doesn't help this evolution at all. But it will happen like it happens in every other industry. Our guest is Mitchell Ozak. He's the CEO of Quanta Consulting, Inc. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick Samprin in for Bill this week and next. Don't forget, subscribe to The Bill Kelly Show podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Any information on how this explosion has affected the black market? That's one of the uh, biggest questions that, that the Canadian cannabis industry, as well as the government, faces. There are different stats, depending on which you want to cherry pick, which would show, for example, the OCS, the Ontario Cannabis Store, shows the illegal market at 60% of total consumption in Canada. There are other stats that show the legal market at 60% of the total market. So the reality is we don't know because criminals don't report accurate data to the government. What we do know is that the illegal market has not gone away. In many cases, it's dropped the price of of its cannabis to compete with the legal market, and it's also expanded its illegal delivery options. So the truth is we're going to have an illegal market for a long time. Colorado still has it six years out. It's roughly 10 to 15 percent of the total consumption in that state. But um, we are seeing a slow decline of the illicit market, without a doubt. Yeah, if those you know illegal distributors and suppliers are still making money at the end of the day. They're they're still going to be around. They're not going anywhere. Hundred percent. Their cost structure is much less than a legal operator. Um, they don't have to you know follow the same rules and regulations as legal operators. So they have much more flexibility to reduce their price. The reality is that as more stores get introduced, better products get introduced and operators get better at serving their consumer segments, they will start to offer superior value and to the black market. And so it's just a matter of time, but more stores will help that transition without a doubt. Uh, I, I don't live in this world. Is online shopping of cannabis an option? And if so, is it popular? Yes, it is an option. It's a flourishing option. 
thanks to COVID, it gave it, you know, quite a bit of steroids to it. And it's still as popular as ever. There are dozens of illegal online delivery services that connect the illegal grower with the with the consumer who wants a black market option. We just don't have the data of how big that market is, how many operators really operate, and how many you know have a storefront. But the, without a doubt, it is a compelling option for some consumers who might be very price sensitive or live in these weed deserts that where they don't have access to a store within, say, a 15 to 20 minute drive from their home. Is the explosion of cannabis stores just a thing in Ontario or is this uh, can be seen across the country? Well, Uh, there you are. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So what my point was, Ontario was slow off the mark in terms of authorizing legal retail stores. Mm -hmm. So where we're roughly 40 to 45 percent of the Canadian population from a cannabis consumption perspective, legally, we're only roughly 29 to 30 percent. Other markets like Alberta got off the mark very quickly and they have many more stores relative on a per capita basis than Ontario does. So what we've seen is some of the major markets in Canada, like Ontario and Quebec, be slower in terms of retail adoption. And other markets like um, Alberta and Saskatchewan reach close to saturation a lot faster. Interesting. Last question for you is Ontario's legal cannabis store explosion makes me think that, you know, most people are not growing their own stuff. Uh, I guess they they find it's just too much hassle. They can just go to the corner store and there it is. Yeah. Again, statistics and data are tough to come by. Many of the grow your own folks are very price sensitive or they're medical users and they consume a lot of cannabis, in particular of a certain strain. That proportion of the population probably will decline over time. But again, in certain segments, it has been relatively static. The long-term trends, if you look at you know markets that have been open a long time, is that consumers steadily shift into the legal market and start moving into higher value products and streams and so on. But it is a transition. It does take time and it can be bumpy. And what we're seeing with Ontario retail stores is that it will be bumpy. And we just have to get through that. Mitchell, great stuff today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Mitchell Ozak is the CEO of Quanta Consulting, Inc. Uh, Just talking about the absolute um, doubling, tripling, quadrupling explosion of legal cannabis stores in Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Although Jeff Bezos will not be the first billionaire in space, that title taken weeks before by Richard Branson, He'll be taking his brother Mark along for the ride. Also on the flights is astronaut sales director Ariane Cornell. Wally Funk, uh, who will become uh, the, the oldest person to have ever flown to space at, uh, uh, at the age of 82. Uh, and Oliver, the youngest person that will have ever flown to space at the age of 18. That's Dutch teen Oliver Damon, the private equity executive's son, grabbing the seat when the auction winner who paid $28 million for it said he'd have to take a later flight due to a scheduling conflict. Dave Packer, ABC News. Ah, I got loads of money. I'll get on the next space flight. <laughs> what a world. What a world we live in, isn't it? Moshe Lander is Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML Hamilton. Moshe, good to talk to you again. How are you? Woo! 
<laughs> I feel like doing a little rant here on like you know spaceships flying and. <laughs> What 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 yeah. should what should we make about this? I mean, this to me is uh, I, I don't know. I'm not even sure that what the word comes to mind. Big business, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, listen, uh, you got a uh, billions and billions of dollars there that uh, you need to spend on some toys, and uh, I guess once you have all of your toys on Earth, it's now you know shoot for the stars and uh, let's see what what can be done with private business that uh, the public sector hasn't been able to do in terms of space exploration and development. Well, and it's huge business. I mean, if someone is willing to spend upwards of $28 million at auction to get one seat on this flight that lasts for, you know, a few minutes, I mean, this, uh, you know, pardon the pun, but the sky's the limit. It is. And, you know, it's one of those things that um, in, in economics, we would talk about the idea of like economies of scale, right? If you think about like building an auto factory, right? If you build a, a factory with all of the millions of dollars of upfront costs and development and things like that, and all you do is you just build a couple of cars, those cars are going to be really, really expensive because you have to spread out all of that fixed cost over just a limited number of things. But if you start mass volume producing millions of cars, those cars start coming down a lot in value. And I think we're at kind of the beginning stage here of what we're going to see is economies of scale within the, the space industry. Yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of money to put one person up there. But a lot of these private developers have been looking at how to reuse rockets and how to reuse the existing platform in a way that the space shuttle didn't really seem to do particularly well. And I think kind of the next evolution is that this is going to come down in a decade or so into, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars to get up there. And so it's certainly more expensive than taking, say, an Air Canada flight. Uh, but the idea is that once they start realizing kind of how to perfect their technique, there's an industry here. And uh, even if it's just a matter of people that want to kind of get up beyond uh, you know, gravitational pull, uh, this, this becomes a business model and, and we're seeing the beginning of it. So is it almost like, you know, buying that uh, CD player uh, in the, in the uh, what was it, early 90s or late 80s for like five grand and like a few years later you can get one for a hundred bucks? Is this going to be like the same thing? That's exactly it, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I think what the, the, the Bezoses of the world or these millionaires that I'll catch the next flight uh, are, are doing is that they're kind of the, the guinea pigs, right? They're the, the sample market that's going to give their feedback on, uh, you know, what the experience was and how to make it a little more consumer friendly. And, uh, you know, if people are seeing that there's a viable business model, how many people would be willing to experiment with the idea of weightlessness or traveling in space uh, if the cost were down into, say, only the, only the thousands of dollars? Um, you know, so they're kind of the pioneers that are, are really kind of setting up the business model uh, much like you said in the 90s, the, the people that were trying out the Walkman and saying it skips when I when I uh, go jogging, uh, you know, the next evolution of the technology is how to avoid the skips. We only got a couple of minutes here. Right now we have Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, uh, which is Richard Branson's company. Are we expecting more and how is that going to impact the eventual price? Yeah, you know, the thing is that once you get past the, the upfront development costs, there's, there's really no barriers to entry. I and mean, it's really just a matter of you have to have the money to be able to do it. And so there's enough people out there that are going to want to compete for that, that market that it, it could very easily turn into something much more competitive like an auto industry where you have maybe, you know, 10 to 15 different manufacturers that really come to dominate the marketplace. And so it might not be these companies that end up surviving much in the same way that you know, we've seen auto companies kind of come and go in the first 150 years of their existence, but 
the idea is that, you know, 50 years down the line, we could easily be talking about uh, a set of competing different companies that are looking to try and provide space travel or, you know, colonize the moon or or Mars, which seems to be, uh, you know, Elon Musk's particular uh um, endeavor. Mm-hmm. The one proviso is, or I guess the hurdle is, if something goes wrong on one of these flights, it could be game over. It could be. But I think if we go back and take a look at, you know, early aircraft and early automobile industry, that was probably the same thing. I don't know necessarily that they had talk radio, <laughs> but the idea was that <laughs> this is probably, you know, your ancestors talking to my ancestor about, you know, if one of these newfangled car things runs over somebody, this could be the game over bit. Maybe litigation is a little more severe now, but I think there's enough there in terms of disclaimers that you kind of know what you're signing up for, that when you leave the ground, there is the chance you might not come back. And so I, I think that um, it, it maybe could set it back a little bit, but I don't think it's going to stop it. And, and, and I think that it's one of those things that as long as you understand the inherent risks that are involved, uh, I, don't, I don't know that that, that puts an end to it. it. It might just delay it for a year or two here. Good point. Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University. Thanks for the time today, and enjoy the uh, big blast, I guess, tomorrow. Anytime. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.